Now, I can't quite remember the last time I've been to a Blue Bomber football game and left feeling good about the game, but uh, that actually happened yesterday, so do you believe in miracles? <laughs> we had a great time at the Bomber game yesterday with our youth group, and uh, yeah, everything lined up. The sun was shining, the Bombers actually played well, and they won the game, so we had a great, a great trip with our youth group in, into Winnipeg yesterday. Uh, we're, we're also hoping that the sunshine will continue for, for the crops and the farmers. I know that the rain was not something that was welcome uh, this past week again, and yet it's, it's come. And so, like Joseph, we trust God, don't we? And we know that he will, he will make a way. There's a crop to be brought in, and there will be a way to do that. And so we trust him. Would you bow with me now as we enter God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you that no matter what circumstances we face, no matter whether the rains fall or don't fall, uh, whether things go our way or don't go our way, that you are in control. You are in charge. Just as you were over Joseph's life, we pray that this morning you would speak to our hearts and affirm within us a sense that you are in control of our lives and that we can trust you. And so I pray that you would speak through this, your word, through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, does anyone remember the good old days where instead of sorting and recycling everything, we just heaped everything in a big pile in the middle of the farmyard and just burnt it? Does anyone remember those good old days? (laughs) Recycling, what's that? And I know some of you are giving me a thumbs up because you're still doing that. But nonetheless, (laughs) we won't shame you publicly. (laughs) Well, it was on just such an occasion where I was around 10 years of age that my grandpa Greening had done the usual, he'd piled up all of the empty chemical jugs, boxes, and any other garbage from the shop, and he had started a rather large fire, a garbage fire, in the middle of the farmyard. Needless to say, being a normal 10-year-old boy, I was drawn to that fire like a moth to the flame. And so, of course, somehow, instantly, a stick materialized in my hand. I don't even know where it came from, but every boy in a fire needs a stick to poke it with. And so there's a stick in my hand... And as soon as this rather large fire had died down enough that I could get close enough to it, I began poking the fire. Well, after a few minutes of this, I had got this big blob of melted burning chemical on the end of my stick, and I was quite pleased with myself because I had a torch. So I was waving this torch around with this flaming blob of melted chemical jug. And after a few more minutes of this, the flame on the stick, of course, died out and went out, and as I thoughtlessly lowered this stick to my side a rather large chunk of this molten chemical plastic touched the side of my bare ankle. And a glob of this instantly stuck to my skin. And feeling the burn of this, I recognized instantly what I'd done. And so I sprinted back towards the house and the garden hose. Just as I arrived at the tap of the garden hose, bang! A sharp explosion echoed through the air. It turns out that amidst the burning garbage pile was an empty aerosol can of ether. You know the kind that has that explosion label on the side? It's there for a reason, because it literally does explode. Jamie, my older brother, who had been playing basketball, I'm not sure how far away, but approximately 100 feet away from the fire, he even had a piece of the metal shrapnel hit him in the leg across that distance. So here's the thing. If I had not burnt myself, and yes, it was an extremely painful burn. I think it was third degree. But if I had not burnt myself, 
I would have been standing directly above that fire. I would have been standing directly above that can when it exploded, and it would have gone off right in my face. Here's the thing, though. As a kid, the explosion barely even registered with me. All I cared about was the pain that I was in, and I couldn't believe how careless I'd been to burn myself. I'd barely even registered that this explosion had happened. But as I grew older and I thought back on that incident and, and what had happened, I wondered, was I just lucky? Was it just some random coincidence, some fortuitous chance that because I'd burned myself and I'd sprinted away from that fire, I'd done so just mere seconds before that can exploded? And as I puzzled over these things and I pondered them, I became more and more convinced that it was not just luck or coincidence. I came to be convinced and believe to this day that the unseen hand of divine providence was there that day protecting me. And now, I, I won't uh, go to the wall on this, but my personal theory is that there was an angelic nudge on my stick that day that pushed it into my leg. That's my own theory. But I believe that whether it was that or whether it was my own hand, I believe that God's hand was there that day protecting me. So let me just ask you, do you believe in the unseen hand of divine providence? Do you believe in it? Are there circumstances, are there times where you look back at your life and say, how could that have been a chance? How could that have just been coincidence? Is there someone more out there who is looking out for me? Is there divine providence? Now, just so we're clear on what we're talking about when we say divine providence, the word comes from the Latin, which most of our words do. Pro means before, and video means to see. So when you put these two together, providence, pro video, means to see before. Providence is to see before. And so when we say divine providence, we are speaking about how God sees before and plans accordingly to accomplish his will. Now, though we believe that God is in control of all things, this doesn't mean that we are puppets on God's string. For he has also given us free will, and so we make decisions, and we are responsible to bear the consequences of those decisions as well. Cause and effect still operates in God's universe. But God is so creative, God is so wise and so powerful, that Seeing before, even though he is not circumventing or altering our free will, seeing before, he, in his wisdom, weaves together all of the countless decisions, both good and bad, that millions upon billions of people have made throughout the ages. And he can so intertwine these decisions to create a masterpiece that he desires in accordance with his perfect will. And now I suspect that most of you here this morning do believe in divine providence. But what about when things are just going plain wrong? When there appears to be no silver lining, no divine coincidence, no deliverance? What about when there's just the pain of the burn, but no, no deliverance that goes along with it? What then? Is God's divine providence still in play? Is it only for some and not for others? To this question, Vance Havner gave this reply. 
The unseen hand may be obscured at times by the fog of circumstance. But just because we can't see the sun on a cloudy day doesn't mean it's not still there. You see, though we as Christians believe in the unseen hand of God's providence, how much more faith is required to keep believing in the midst of the fog? How much more faith is required to be exercised when all is gloomy, when all is dark, when there are no silver linings anywhere to be found? When all around you things are just going from bad to worse, and all you want to cry out is unfair. God, where is your hand? I can't see it. So let me ask you, how convinced are we? How convinced that no matter how bad things might appear, that God is still sovereign and in control? Charles Spurgeon once said, We believe in the providence of God, but we do not believe half as much as we should. Now, at first glance, this topic might seem to be a bit boring or a confusing or obscure piece of theology that doesn't really apply to our everyday lives. But that couldn't be further from the truth. For I am convinced that if I am truly convinced that God's providential care is in every aspect, every detail of my life, no matter how minute, I am convinced that I can then live my life without fear or anxiety, I can then live my life in complete freedom no matter what happens. And this freedom enables us then to live, love, serve, and forgive the way that God desires us to. And so this belief in God's divine providence is a foundation, if you will, for all that follows and how we live our lives. So let me ask you again, how convinced are you? How persuaded that the unseen hand of divine providence is at work in your life, even when you can't see it. Now, if there was ever a man who had the right to doubt God's providence, and to just look up to the heavens and and cry out, unfair, that man's name was Joseph. We've already seen a little bit of his story this morning. Turn with me, if you will, this morning to Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to set the stage a little bit more on this account Genesis chapter 37, we saw part of this account in the children's video. Now we know the backstory of Joseph. Most of us are familiar with it. He was Joseph's, or pardon me, Jacob, his father's favorite because he was the oldest of his favorite wife, Rachel. He had a younger brother from Rachel as well whose name was Benjamin. They were both the apple of his father's eye. The other ten brothers, they were the daughters of Leah, pardon me, the sons of Leah. And so they, of course, were, they were sons, they were important, but they just weren't given the favored status that their two youngest brothers were. And so, of course, this created jealousy. The dreams just added to that jealousy. The favoritism, of course, the the coat of many colors all playing into it. And so here's this moment. They're way out in the, the plains of Midian. They're far away from their father's home. And to this circumstance, we read this in Genesis 37, beginning in verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornate robe he was wearing. And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? 
Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. Now, if this story doesn't seem unfair to you, then I wouldn't want to be your brother. Okay? If this doesn't just scream out injustice, then you need to check yourself. In this circumstance, Joseph's brothers think so little of his life. They think so little of it, the only thing they're really concerned about is how to get away with his disposal. That's it. And yeah, Judah throws in a little bit, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood after all, so let's make some money off of him rather than having to cover up his death. And so to his brothers, all Joseph's life was worth to them was 20 shekels of silver. That price has significance, by the way. The price was that of a healthy male slave. That was it. 20 shekels of silver. A healthy male slave. That was all Joseph's life was worth. Later on, that price was increased to 30 shekels of silver. A number that also has significance. But let me ask you. Have you ever felt like all your life was worth was 20 shekels, 20 bucks. You ever felt like that? That's all you were worth, 20 bucks. That's about the value of my life. Or perhaps you didn't feel that way about yourself, but it sure felt like others felt that way about you. That other people felt like, you're worthless. You're worth 20 bucks. That's all I'd give for your life. Have you ever felt like that? Well, Joseph not only felt like that, that was reality. That was what he was living And so if anyone had the right to look up to heaven and just yell out unfair again and again, it was Joseph. And it wasn't just because of his brothers, but later on, when things are finally looking up for him in Egypt, you know, things are going well with Potiphar, he's doing well, he's put in charge of the entire household and the entire estate, then of course we know that the wife of Potiphar, she notices him, she notices he's handsome, she tries to seduce him, and when he refuses her advances, she cries out rape. And then as a result of this accusation, he's then finally thrown into a deep, dark dungeon because of a false accusation. And again, unfair, injustice. If anyone had the right to look up to heaven and say, God, you're giving me the raw deal. Where are you? It was Joseph. But though there may well have been moments throughout Joseph's life where these things are happening, There were undoubtedly dark moments where Joseph entertained these thoughts in his mind of, where are you, God? Scripture never records those words coming from his lips. Isn't that remarkable? There is no record given that Joseph ever lamented what was done to him. Of course, we can can only imagine the inner turmoil that he endured. But despite his circumstances, Joseph maintained an unshakable trust in God. And so when the day of his vindication finally arrives, the day that he must have dreamt about where his brothers are finally at his mercy, rather than lifting his own hand in vengeance, Joseph looks backward over the course of his life and everything that had happened to him. And because of his unshakable faith in God, he is able to see the events for what they were. 
And he points to God's unseen hand of providence, which used even his brother's act of extreme cruelty to orchestrate their family's deliverance. Flip ahead now to Genesis 45, and let's look at his words. His words begin in verses 4 to 8, but just to preface his words, it's interesting that we see the inner turmoil that must have gone on in Joseph's heart and mind over those years, that when he's finally at the point of confronting his brothers on what they've done and revealing to them who he is, that he, the right-hand man to the Pharaoh in Egypt, they had no clue who he was. And he's about to reveal his identity to them, but before he does so, the verse says that Joseph wept aloud. In fact, he wept so loud that it says the noise of it was heard all the way to Pharaoh's household. And so here, though the words aren't uttered, we see the inner anguish just bubbling to the surface that Joseph is so overcome by emotion, he wails aloud. This is the first instance in scripture where this word is actually used. And, and the, the term is not a sniffle. It's not, it's not like a, some tears that are trickling down that, you know, the guys we try to hide when we're watching, you know, Old Yeller or something like that. Like, that's not what this is. The word is describing he is wailing. He is so racked with emotion. He is sobbing. He is convulsing. He has to get away to control himself. But then finally he just can't. And he reveals to his brothers... In verse 4, Joseph says to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now just imagine this revelation coming to his brothers. Imagine their fear, their trepidation. I am your brother Joseph, the one that you sold into Egypt, and now I am the right hand of the Pharaoh, and your lives are in my hands. Can you just imagine the sheer terror and disbelief that those ten brothers had that day? But then listen to what Joseph says next. He sees the terror, the disbelief, the shock on his brothers' faces. But verse 5, And now do not be distressed, And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. What? Aren't the next words to be ones of vengeance? Now you're going to pay. No. He goes so far as to say, calm yourselves. Don't even be angry at yourselves. Why? Look at what he says next. The next line of verse 5. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. What a perspective. What What wisdom did Joseph have to be able to interpret all of the past injustices of his life and to even say to his brothers, don't even blame yourselves. Don't even be angry with yourselves. It was God who used your actions to save our family by a great deliverance. What a perspective. 
And how many of us, if, the, if we were put in Joseph's shoes that day, even if we knew that, wouldn't still want to make them squirm a little bit longer? Wouldn't want to just put the fear in them just that much more? Make them pay for what they'd done for him? But Joseph, in his wisdom, in his faith in God, explains that it was not them, but it was God who had orchestrated all of this. And Joseph realized and he understood that behind everything, underneath everything, over and through everything that had happened to him, God was orchestrating their deliverance. Now let me just ask you, if God can use the petty jealousy and the murderous intent of Joseph's brothers to bring about his perfect will, is there any circumstance in your life that you are currently facing that is too difficult for him to handle? Is there anything? Is there anything that remains that God could not handle? Theologian T. Dewitt Talmadge said this, Despots may plan and armies may march, and the congresses of the nations may seem to think they are adjusting all the affairs of the world, but the mighty men of the earth are only the dust of the chariot wheels of God's providence. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2 says this, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Joseph understood who God was and is. And Joseph was a humble man, a man who humbled himself before God's providential hand, a man of contrite spirit who trembled at God's word that was revealed to him and believed. And we must remember, Joseph did not have God's word the way we have it. For Joseph, God's word was the little bit that had been handed on to him from his father Jacob, and it was the dreams that God had revealed to him. That was God's word to Joseph. And Joseph believed God's word to him. As little as it was, he believed those dreams. He held on to them. He trembled at God's word, believing they were true. And God took his life and brought about a great deliverance. So let me ask, can we say the same about ourselves? Do we humbly believe God no matter what? Do we tremble at his revealed word to us, believing that it's true, knowing it will be so, even when in the face of our circumstances it appears to be false? Do we tremble? Do we believe that God will bring about his will no matter what? Because let me just tell you, if we, if we look at the future and we're harboring fears of what could be, if we're holding on to worry and anxiety... And we think, I've got to hold on to this because, well, this is mine to hold on to. God, like, I know you're out there, I know you're in control, but I need to hold on to this worry. When we do that, we are in essence telling God, I don't believe that you can handle this one. This one's too much for you, I've got to hold on to it. But as I said at the beginning, if you truly believe that God's providential care is in every single aspect of your life, then you can live your life without fear or anxiety, in complete freedom, that no matter what happens, you can live 
love, serve, and forgive the way that God desires us to. You don't even have to worry about settling the score with those who have wronged you. Joseph didn't do that. He left it up to God. And look what God did. So let go of your need to be in control. Believe God. Give complete control over to him. And then enjoy the ride. Because God will lead you providentially by his unseen hand. There's a great true story of a man named Thomas Coke. Thomas Coke was a sophisticated, Oxford-educated Welshman who left his ministry in the Anglican Church in order to become John Wesley's chief assistant in the new and quickly growing Methodist movement in the Americas. On September 24, 1785, he packed his books in his bags and he sailed out of England down the Channel and into the Atlantic Ocean, heading for Nova Scotia, where he planned to establish a group of missionaries who who accompanied him on the journey. But along the way, the voyage hit rough waters, and the trip grew more perilous by the day. The ship was caught up in mountainous waves. The masts began to split in the hurricane-level winds. The ship's captain soon became convinced that Coke and his missionaries were like biblical Jonah in the days of old, that perhaps they were running from God and so had brought this misfortune upon him and his crew. He even considered throwing them overboard. But while he stopped just short of that, he did in fact grab much of Coke's papers and his missionary material, and he threw them overboard into the raging ocean. Rather than the expected one-month journey, the voyage took three months. And rather than landing in Nova Scotia as they had planned, they arrived in the Caribbean island of Antigua, thousands of miles off course. There the tattered ship limped unannounced, and unexpected into St. John's Harbor in the pre-dawn light of Christmas morning, December 25th, 1777. Coke had heard that at least one Methodist missionary lived somewhere on the Isle of Antigua, a man named John Baxter. Hoping to find him, Coke and his three missionaries went ashore in the early morning of that Christmas day, and they started down the streets into St. John's. They stopped the first person they found, a fellow walking up the street, swinging a lantern in his hand. They asked him if he knew where they could find John Baxter. To their utter astonishment, the man replied, Look no further. You found him. He was on his way to prepare a special series of Christmas morning services that he had planned for the island. And the sudden appearance of Coke and his missionaries out of the darkness, out of nowhere, seemed too good to be true. Enlisting their services, they joined with him that day. And as news of the stranger's arrival spread throughout the city, the crowds grew. They flocked to the services. And it finally took three special services to accommodate the crowds on that Christmas day. After it was all over, Coke and the missionaries abandoned any idea of returning to Nova Scotia. They instead planted their missionary team on the Isle of Antigua. And by the time of Coke's death, many years later, in the year 1814 there were some estimated 17,000 new believers in the churches there. Sometimes, when our plans don't work as we had hoped, it's because God in his overruling providence is detouring us to something greater. While life is seldom fair, God is always good. 
This is a foundational truth that our faith urges and enables us to hold on to him in spite of whatever comes our way. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said this, Life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward. That is how so much of our lives unfold. Today seems uncertain. The future seems completely obscured to our vision. And yet when we look backward over our lives and we see the thread of God's providential hand, it begins to make sense. And I suspect that a day is coming, perhaps for many of us sooner than we anticipate, that we are going to look backward and God is going to show us the golden thread of his will through our entire lives and we're going to just marvel. Our jaws are going to drop for thousands of years in heaven just marveling at how God could have worked out such a plan. And what appears to us to be obscured and and chaotic, erratic, coincidental, God is behind and underneath and throughout all of it. As we look at Joseph's story, we can't help but be moved at the power of this man's faith. And we are challenged today to ask ourselves, to search our hearts, where is our faith at? Now, in addition to Joseph's story, there are many other examples throughout Scripture. But the pinnacle story of someone who is holding on to faith in God in, the spite of their, in spite of their circumstances, in the face of them all, it is our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone could have rightfully looked up to heaven and yelled out, unfair, it was him. Because remember, his value too had been placed at only 30 pieces of silver. He was betrayed He was spat upon, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was lashed, he was disfigured to the point of not even being recognizable. A crown of thorns was rammed upon his head, and then he was nailed to that cruel cross. Was there ever a more unfair act in all of history than he who had no sin becoming sin for us? But through it all, even when the Son called out from that cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father who knew and felt every bit of his son's anguish and pain was busy executing the greatest act of deliverance for all people of all time, of every nation, tongue, and tribe that this planet has ever known or ever will know. What looked like for all the world a a, a defeat, a failure, was in fact the greatest deliverance the world has ever seen. Joseph recognized that God brought about a great deliverance through his suffering, and so he became a foreshadowing of the great one to come, the Lord Jesus. That what looked like the conquest of goodness, truth, life, and love was instead the beginning of the end of evil, sin, and death, and darkness forever. And so here we are today. We are the inheritors of this divine providence. We are the children of faith of those who have gone before us who have shown us the way. And so here as we gather in the sanctuary, the Lord's table is spread before us. And we prepare to participate in this sacred meal. Remember that we are reveling, we are celebrating in the most cruel and unfair act in all of history where the Prince of Glory died in our place for our sins. Was it fair? No, my friends, it was gloriously unfair. Because in that unfair and unjust act, our deliverance was purchased. And that is grace. 
And that is what we are here to relish in this morning, is God's grace. That his unseen hand of providence reaches out to us, even in our brokenness and our sin, and he shows us grace. And so today, as we come to this table, may we receive it with a firm conviction, firm faith that God is at work in every circumstance in our life. That even in the worst pain and despair that can come, when we can't see a silver lining, that's because God is preparing a golden lining. And we have to be patient in waiting for it. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you and we honor you. We give you all glory and praise. You are a wise and wonderful God. Your ways are so far above our ways. Your thoughts so high above our thoughts that you can take all of our decisions, both good and bad, and intertwine them in such a way that your perfect will is accomplished. And so, Father, we give you glory and praise. Thank you that each one of us is here today. It's not dumb luck. It's not just chance or coincidence that we are here. It is according to your will. And so thank you, Father, that as we prepare to partake of this table, your table, that as we take the cup, as we share in the bread, that, Lord Jesus, we remember your suffering. We remember the unfair cruelty that was showed to you so that we could be forgiven. That you were willing to take our sins upon yourself. Help us to remember and to be moved again by your sacrifice. And we pray, Lord, that as you cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them. You did not seek vengeance, nor did Joseph. He did not seek vengeance upon his brothers. Instead, he too forgave And Father, you have told us that we are to forgive others the way that you have forgiven us. And so we thank you, O Lord. Thank you for our forgiveness. And Lord, as we prepare to take this cup, we ask that you would give us the grace to forgive others the way you have forgiven us. That we too can show mercy to others. Thank you that your work is so ready by your spirit to do this within us. So be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. I would invite those who have consented to help serve this morning to please come forward to the front at this time. And let's take these next moments to prepare ourselves to share in the Lord's Supper.